Greetings, everyone. We're going to be covering Revelation part one. Jesus Christ, our tri triumphant King. We'll begin now with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you have provided us with the encouragement, the certainty that in the end, your gospel message, your plan for the salvation of those that you have called will prevail. And this world will eventually be brought under your total control. For that we are so thankful. We are so thankful that even in the midst of all of the trials and tribulations that we face in this life, we can have that certainty. We can rest with that assurance that your will will prevail. Revelation part one, Jesus Christ, our triumphant King. The author of Revelation identifies himself as John the Apostle. John wrote Revelation from the island of Patmos during the last years of his life, around 95 to 100 AD. As punishment for his faith in Jesus Christ, John had been exiled to this rocky outpost in the Aegean Sea, home to a Roman penal colony. It's believed that John wrote Revelation between AD 95 and 96. Early church historians say he wrote the book at the end of Emperor Domitian's reign. And we'll get into that more later about when the book was written. Who wrote Revelation? Traditionally, Revelation was ascribed to the Apostle John. But in recent years, it has become popular among scholars to assert that the book was written by another John, known as John the Elder. But we can remain confident that Revelation was written by John the Apostle. First, we'll look at the internal evidence, the evidence within the book itself. The author calls himself John five times. No one else but the Apostle John could use just his name, John, and have his book accepted. It is the only book other than the Gospel of John, also written by the Apostle John, to refer to Christ as the Word, the Logos, in the personal sense. The basic style and content use of the Greek that the Apostle John. The vocabulary has a strong overlap with 416 words in the gospel, the same as 913 separate words in Revelation. So we find that the vocabulary is very consistent between the two books. Also, the, the author's detailed knowledge of the land and events fits the Apostle John. And the late date, AD 95, which I am convinced is the correct date, it's John who alone among the apostles lived to this date. The external evidence, the evidence from outside the book, Justin Martyr, one of the early church fathers, called the author, a certain man among us whose name was John, one of the apostles of Christ. Irenaeus, an early resident of Asia, cited as John's writing. The Shepherd of Hermas, which is a, a literary work that was very popular among early Christians. The Shepherd of Hermas refers to it. The early Muratorian Canon, which is a, a second century listing of, of the books of the New Testament. The early Muratorian Canon includes it in the Bible. 
by the early fathers cited it as coming from John the Apostle, including Tertullian, Origen, Athanasius, and Augustine. Later voices to reject John's authorship did so on dogmatic grounds, largely because they opposed John's millennialism. So the people who did later reject John's authorship did so, on, but on, they were very biased. They had, they had a, a axe to grind against the idea of John's millennialism. And they used an allegorical method of interpretation these people who rejected John's authorship. The alleged assertion by Papias that John was martyred before AD 70 is contradicted by many other sources and is subject to other interpretations. There are other ways to understand the statement. Uh. Papias. When was Revelation written? There are two views as to when Revelation was written, the early view and the late view. Those who hold the early view believe the book was written in the late 60s after Nero's reign ended in AD 68 to 69. So there are various arguments that are put forward for an early view, an early writing. So I'll examine those arguments. I'll, I'll list the arguments and then I'll give a response to them. Argument one, John reflects a time of persecution of Christians, which fits Nero's time. My response to that is, well, intense persecution also occurred under Domitian in AD 96. There is no evidence that Nero's persecution occurred beyond Rome, as Domitian's probably did. But John is speaking about such a persecution in the churches in Asia Minor. Argument two, John's allusions to emperor worship reflect a time just after Nero. There is no solid evidence that Nero made worshiping him a requirement. It is known that Domitian stressed his deity, ordering that he addressed, be addressed as Lord and God. In the futurist interpretation, the texts cited above are not references to first century Roman emperors, but to the Antichrist of the future tribulation period. Revelation speaks of the beast recovering from a mortal wound. And a legend holds that Nero came back to life from a mortal wound. The existence of this Nero myth is said to be more compatible with the earlier date, shortly after Nero's time. It takes longer than a few years, Nero died in 1868 or 69, for a myth like this to grow. It takes decades and not generations. There are some significant dissimilarities with Nero, since there is no evidence that he demanded worship of all or that he used a mark of the beast on all citizens. In the futurist interpretation, this refers to the future Antichrist. The numerical value of the letters in Nero's name equals 666, the very number of the Antichrist. This too argues for an early date just after Nero. Well, this same argument has been used for popes, Hitler, and many others, including Ronald Reagan even, being the Antichrist. None of them were. Some people claim that uh, Ronald Reagan was going to be the Antichrist because his, his full name was uh, Ronald Wilson Reagan. So each of his names, first, middle, and last, had six letters, 666. So they thought Ronald Reagan was going to be the Antichrist. But none of the... Uh, candidates for the Antichrist uh, turned out to be the Antichrist. 
my favorite joke about 666 is the um, the one about Barney, you know, the, the purple dinosaur, Barney being the beast. Because if you take the phrase cute purple dinosaur, cute purple dinosaur, and then you change all of the U's to V's like they did in, in ancient Latin, and then you take all of the letters from cute purple dinosaur that have uh, significance, uh, that have numerical value as Roman numerals, and you add them all up, you get 666. So that proves that Barney is the beast. It may apply to one who is yet future, namely the Antichrist and the tribulation period to come. There is a way to interpret the 666 other than adding the, the numerical values, uh, value of the letters in a name. Three is the number of divine perfection for God and six is the number of man or human imperfection. Thus the Antichrist is merely an imperfect man who claims to be God. So there's lots of speculation about how to you know, devise a, a system so that, that the letters of a person's name add up to 666, but it's all speculation. We just really don't know at this time. Argument five, the book of Revelation refers to the Jerusalem temple as still standing, but it was destroyed in AD 70. Hence the book must have been written before AD 70. Well, John may be referring to a rebuilt temple of the future tribulation period and not to any temple standing in his day. John refers to seven kings, five of whom are fallen, and the sixth who was alive when he was writing. This would take us up to Galba, who reigned shortly after Nero. But the text is not clear. Where does the counting begin? With Augustus? or from Caesar, who first claimed imperial rights, or from Caligula, who was the first to persecute Christians. Should the three minor ones be included, who reigned only for a short time in AD 68 to 69? So this, this business of counting Roman emperors is, is not a slam dunk. Is this a reference to the emperors in John's day or to future kings as some futurists claim? John used terms like near and quickly, indicating that he anticipated an immediate fulfillment. But the only near event that occurred when things could have been fulfilled was the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Well, quickly can mean suddenly, not soon. Near is a relative term that can be used in events thousands of years in the future. The question is near for whom, God or for us? I refer to the second Peter 3.10, a day with the Lord is a, a thousand years is as a day with the Lord. So who, near for whom? Hebrews refers to the second coming as a little while, and it has been almost 2000 years since, and still it has not happened. So the late view, let's look at the late view. The late view that Revelation was written in the 1890s is supported by good evidence. Early father Irenaeus in the second century said of John, who beheld the apocalyptic vision that he received almost in our day toward the end of Domitian's reign. Irenaeus said, Victorinus in the third century wrote, when John said the, these things, he was on the island of Patmos, condemned to the mines by Caesar Domitian. Eusebius, the, the church historian in the fourth century, confirmed the, the Domitian date. Other early fathers after AD 70 refer to the tribulation or the Antichrist spoken of in Revelation as yet future. So see Commandianus Commandianus in the third century and Ephraim of Syria in the fourth century. John's exile on the island of Patmos implies a later date when persecution was more rampant. Not just the persecution in Rome that was Nero's day. References to persecution and martyrdom in the churches reflect the later date, but empire-wide persecution. Polycarp's reference. Polycarp was a, was a disciple of John, the Apostle John. Polycarp's reference to the church at Smyrna 
reveals that it did not exist in Paul's day, but AD 64, as it did in Revelation 2.8. The conditions of the seven churches fit this later period rather than that reflected in Paul's epistles written in the 60s. Emperor worship reflected in Revelation did not exist in Nero's day, so he could not have been a fulfillment of it. Laodicea was a prosperous city in Revelation 3.17, yet it was destroyed by an earthquake in AD 61, and is unlikely to have been rebuilt into such a prosperous city so fast in only a few years. So it must have taken some time, which would indicate a, a later date for the writing of Revelation. The Nicolaitans referred to in Revelation 2.6 were not firmly established until nearer the end of the century. For the early date, there is not enough time for John to replace Paul as the main leader of the Asian church. So by the time that Revelation was written, uh, Apostle John was established, well established in, in Ephesus. Okay, now let's look at the landmarks. The book of Revelation, also known as the Apocalypse or the Revelation of Jesus Christ, is the most astonishing preview of the future ever recorded. Considered to be one of the most powerful books in scripture, Revelation is a direct vision John had from God to ask him to record it for future generations. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. There's a very important verse in the book and I'll refer to it several times. Written in symbolic language, this book employs many of the metaphors found in other parts of the scriptures, which are key to understanding their meaning in Revelation. Out of the 404 passages in this book, 360 quote or allude to the Old Testament. Revelation was given to John to show the Lord's servants things which must shortly take place. In short, prophecies of things to come. Shortly means that once they begun, the events will happen quickly over a brief period of time. The book reaches back to the fall of Satan and forward to the doom in store for him and his angels, warning that the world's end and judgment are certain. But it also assures us of the glories that will come to the faithful. After taking us through the events of all of the great tribulation and the eternal fate of all unbelievers, Revelation offers a glimpse of the eternal state, forever home awaiting God's people. The itinerary, the outline of the book, well, that's given to us by the book itself. First of all, we see the vision that John saw of Christ, the things which you have seen, and then the, the spiritual condition of the church, the things which are, and then the bulk of the book, the things that will happen after the time of John, the things which shall be hereafter. Gospel. Jesus is the primary revelation of the book of Revelation. The, the heading that you will find in the earlier translation is um, the revelation of St. John the, the Divine. But that was added by men. It really isn't the revelation of John. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ is what the text itself tells us. The Greek word for revelation, apocalypsis, denotes an unveiling. Think of a statue being unveiled in front of City Hall. This book reveals Jesus Christ in his undiminished glory. He has always been God's plan A from before time began on this world. Because of that, he has been Satan's target since the fall. Once God promised that Jesus would eventually defeat Satan, or back in Genesis 3.15, Satan devoted himself to trying to cut off the line of the promised Messiah, something we see in the cosmic symbols of Revelation. The dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. 
She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Satan failed to stop Jesus' first coming, and he won't prevent his return either. The book of Revelation, then, gives us the full picture of Jesus, not only as Savior, but as coming judge and king. One day Jesus will return and rule all nations with a rod of iron, crushing Satan's head once for all, fulfilling the prophecy of Genesis 3.15. But before that time, Satan will make one final attempt to sabotage God's plan, unleashing his, unleashing his fury on mankind because he'll know his time is almost up. During this time of tribulation, Israel will face persecution that will dwarf even the Holocaust. But Satan won't win. The same Jesus who died on the cross as Savior will reign with his people as sovereign. When all is said and done, Jesus will come to judge the world and reign forevermore. This is the culmination of the gospel. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is when the scarlet thread of redemption be tied off, the tapestry completed. Revelation was composed, I believe, I'm convinced of this, during Emperor Domitian's reign. Domitian reigned from 1881 to 96, which saw widespread paganism and Christian persecution. The total history covered in the book, on the other hand, spans from about 1895 to an undisclosed time in the future, a time that only God knows, of course. Here's the, the region of Patmos. Down in the lower right-hand corner, you see where Patmos is located off the, the coast of Asia Minor, what is today, Turkey. And it's not too far from Ephesus where the Apostle John based his activities at that time. Uh, so uh, Patmos is a tiny little island, only about 17 square miles. And that's where John was imprisoned and from which he wrote this book. There's a closer up shot of the island of Patmos. The travel tips, the Applications and implications, if you will. Open your heart to Jesus. One of the enduring images of Revelation is that of Jesus knocking at the door, humbly requesting entry into the hearts of people with whom he wants to have fellowship. Despite being rejected over and over again, Jesus still wants that intimate closeness with us. Often the, the image of Jesus knocking at the door is uh, is used in terms of evangelism but if you read this passage carefully it's not it's not talking about evangelism it's not talking about uh, the unchurched the unconverted it's talking about jesus wanting to have communion and fellowship with converted people people who are in the church so that's what is really being talked about when jesus is standing at the door knocking why is Revelation so full of symbols? For one, symbolism can stand the test of time, transcending era, language, and culture. Symbols also arouse strong emotions in ways that straight facts can't. For example, talking about a world dictator is one thing. Describing a beast rising out of the sea evokes the awe and wonder he will one day provoke. Also, the symbols in Revelation have their roots in the Old Testament which makes their interpretation more verifiable. A special blessing for those who take the time to study and believe this book begins with digging in to its rich symbolism. Persecution and suffering. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are cons to consider persecution as an opportunity to grow spiritually. Eternal judgment. As those who believe the Bible is the word of God, we must never teach a doctrine of universalism that all people will eventually be saved. Purposes of Revelation, there are many reasons for writing the book of Revelation. To communicate the person, power, and program of the Savior. 
to comfort the persecuted saints, to condemn the princes of sin, to complete the plan of scripture, to convey the promise of Christ's second coming, the theme of revelation, the consummation of all things in Christ. It's quite apparent that that is the theme of the book of Revelation. The key verse, here we go again, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. Those are the three vital components of John's revelation. The use of the Old Testament in Revelation. The language of Revelation is heavily dependent on the Old Testament. The most used books are Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. The nature of Revelation. It is a book with a prophetic program, enigmatic proclamations, having mysterious meaning. But the fact that there's there are enigmatic proclamations having mysterious meaning. That doesn't mean that we can't understand the book of Revelation. The Bible interprets itself. John explains, either explains what his symbols mean or they are based on Old Testament symbolism. So we can find out what John is referring to. It is also a book with a dramatic plot and a climatic, climactic plan. It is a book with cataclysmic pronouncements, judgments. It is a book with an apocalyptic presentation, revelations. Once again, the, the word apocalypse doesn't mean something, some mysterious thing that we can't understand. The, book, the word apocalypse refers to a revelation, to a making clear, a making plain. And as we saw in Eric's message last Sunday, there's a, a polemic purpose of the book, an anti-Babylon purpose. He's arguing against Babylon and for the city of Jesus Christ. nature of revelation, there is a numeric proliferation in the book of Revelation. There are many numbers, many sevens and twelves. And those aren't the only numbers, those, those certainly predominate, but there are other numbers too, you know, the 42 months, the time times and half a time, the, the 1,000 years of the, of the millennium. And you won't see this in the English, but in the Greek, there's a rhythmic and a parenthetic progression in the book of Revelation. There are symbolic pictures in the book of Revelation. There is Hebraic phraseology. 278 of 104 verses are from the Old Testament. It is the most prophetic of all of the New Testament books. John classified himself as a prophet, and he refers to his book as a prophecy. Five times he refers to it as a prophecy. And in that regard, an expression that you will often hear these days is apocalyptic literature. Should the book of Revelation be considered apocalyptic literature rather than prophecy? In recent years, it has become popular to classify Revelation as apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature developed in the intertestamental period, the time between the, the writing of the Old Testament and the writing of the New Testament. As a genre, apocalyptic literature details the author's visions of the end times, the end of the age, as revealed by an angel or other heavenly messenger. It also makes extensive use of symbols. But there is a difference here. The meaning of the symbols in apocalyptic literature is highly subjective. That is not the case with the book of Revelation. The symbols used in the, in the book of Revelation are firmly rooted in Old Testament symbolism.
prophecy believes, this is an important distinction between the book of Revelation and apocalyptic literature. Prophecy believes that this world is God's world and that his goodness and truth will yet be vindicated as the prophet prophesies of a definite future arising out of and organically connected with the present. The apocalyptic writer, on the other hand, despairs on the present and directs his hopes to the future, to a new world standing in essential opposition to the present. So revelation should be considered prophecy and not apocalyptic literature. Worship, it, the book of Revelation, stresses worship more than any other book in the New Testament. So we, we see a great deal about worship, especially the, the worship that is taking place in heaven. Now, the interpretation of the book of Revelation. This is uh, where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. There are several ways the book of Revelation has been understood. Now we look, and I look, and, and I, I'm assuming, I'm presuming that most of you, if not all of you, look at the prophecies in the book of Revelation as future prophecies, prophecies of future events. But that is not the way that everybody looks at it. There is the preterist view, the historicist view, the futurist view, which is the view that I hold, and the idealist or spiritual view. Let's, let's take a look at these. First of all, we'll look at the preterist view. There are full preterists and partial preterists. So it is important uh, to understand that, that distinction. The full preterists take all the predictions in Revelation as referring to the past, having been fulfilled between AD 64 and 70 under a narrow string, including the resurrection of believers and the second coming of Christ. So in order to get there, they have to spiritualize these things away. They have to say that the resurrection of believers uh, is not a literal bodily resurrection. The resurrection occurs uh, you know, in some spiritual, mystical fashion. And the same thing with the second coming of Christ. It's not a literal bodily return. Partial preterists believe that only the prediction about the tribulation have been fulfilled, not the resurrection of believers and the second coming of Christ. So they believe those things, the resurrection of believers and the second coming of Christ, those things are still future. But they do believe that all the prophecies about the tribulation were fulfilled in AD 70. response to full preterism. This view is heretical, since it affirms that the resurrection is past. It is opposed to the early creeds and councils of the church, a test for orthodoxy, and they affirm that Christ's coming was still future after AD 70. So the, the creeds and councils of the church affirm that Christ's coming was still future after AD 70. The preterist view allegorizes away much of the literal truth of Revelation, which method, if consistently used, would undermine other fundamentals of the faith, such as creation and the life, death and resurrection of Christ. Response to partial preterism. It is inconsistent, since the same terms, for example, near and quickly, used to prove what was fulfilled by AD 70, are used in the whole book including the resurrection of believers and the second coming. So we can't say that using those terms near and quickly proves that it had to be fulfilled by 1870. There are many things mentioned in Revelation 6 through 18, other parallel passages that did not in fact happen between 8064 and 70, as partial preterists claim. For example, the moon did not turn to blood. The stars did not fall from the sky. 
One third of human beings were not killed. All life in the sea did not die. Christ did not come visibly and he is not literally reigning on a throne on earth right now. He did not distribute the final rewards in AD 70. Israel was not yet converted by AD 70. To allegorize all of this away is to undercut the very foundation of Orthodox Christianity, which is based on a literal understanding of the biblical text. Now, let's look at the historicist view. Now, th this is a view that you, you may not be very familiar with. So I'll spend a little bit of time explaining what this view is. Revelation, according to this view, is a symbolic picture of the total history of the church, age by age, from apostolic to modern times. This view simply does not fit the historical events, as is evident from the fact that there are many different interpretations, many different historicist views. It is a serious stretch of the imagination to see in John's vision the Islamic invasion, the rise of the papacy, and the great modern European wars. These are some of the things that various historicist views consider as to be a fulfillment of Revelation. This view is also a form of allegorical interpretation, which suffers from the same criticism as with other views. So I'm going to help, help you understand what this what a historicist view is. So there are many different historicist views, but I'm going to, to give you one as an example. Once again, Please understand, I'm not saying that this is the correct understanding of the book of Revelation. I'm merely presenting this as an example, an illustration, so, you, so you'll understand what an historicist view is. Um, there are many different historicist views, but this is one that's quite popular, one that I'm familiar with. So according to this historicist view, they see the first seal on the white horse as the church in the first century. And they see the second seal as the red horse as the church from AD 100 to 311, up to the time of Constantine. They see the third seal, the black horse, as being the church between the reign of Constantine and the establishment of the papacy in AD 538. They see the fourth seal, the pale horse, as the church, depicting the church from AD 538 to the beginning of the Reformation. And they see the fifth seal as the church during the Reformation, taking the church during the Reformation. Now, with the sixth seal, there are events that are described. And here's how they see those events of the sixth seal. The great earthquake, they equate that with the November 1st, 1755 earthquake great earthquake that happened in Lisbon. The darkening of the sun, they associate that with the, an event that occurred, a mysterious event that occurred in, on May 19th in 1780 in New England. And then that night, there was, the moon became as blood. So that's how they interpret those events. The stars of heaven fell, well, they, they equate that with a great meteoric shower of November 13, 1833. So they equate these prophecies in the book of Revelation with past historical events. The seventh seal is of course made up of the seven trumpets. How do they interpret those? Well, here's, here's their interpretation of the first trumpet. They think that the devastating, the first trumpet refers to the devastating invasions of the Roman Empire under the Goths, closing in the fourth century and onward. Now, notice something here. Remember, we got up to 1833. Now with the trumpets, they're going back in time. They're going back to the fourth century. So they're not, 
that are not consistent in following all the way through. The second trumpet, well, they see that as the division of the Roman Empire into three parts after the death of Constantine, the invasion and conquest of Africa, and afterwards of Italy by Gaiseric, or Genseric, he's also known, King of the Vandals. That's how they interpret the second trumpet. The third trumpet, the desolating wars and various invasions of Attila, King of the Huns. And incidentally, if you didn't know, uh, Attila's wife referred to him as Hun. The, the fourth trumpet, they equate that with the career of Udo Acer, the first barbarian ruler of Italy, intimately connected with the downfall of Western Rome. And then in the fifth trumpet, they associate that with the rise of Islam and the Muslim invasion of Europe. The sixth trumpet, well, after the Muslims had tormented the third part of men, a third of the Roman Empire, the Greek division of it, that's how they interpret that, for five months, well, five months of 30 days each, and that's 150 days, and they equate each day with a year, so they see that as that five months as being 150 years. So at the end of this 150 years, the, the sixth trumpet is sounded, and the restraints are now lifted, and the Muslims are able to go from just tormenting men to actually killing them politically. So it's during this period that the Muslims capture Constantinople and set up the Ottoman Empire. So you can see how equating the prophecies of the book of Revelation with historical events can produce a, a system that is quite complex, but it also produces a system that is very convincing to those who hold this view because they see a correlation between the events of history and the prophecies in the book of Revelation. The bowl or vile judgments, the seven last plagues are seen as yet future events in this view. So at, at a certain point, and this will vary in different historicist views, uh, they, they do see some of the events as being future, as being un, as yet unfulfilled. The futurist view. This is the view that I subscribe to, and I'm quite confident that you subscribe to. According to this position, the prophecies of John are future, literal. So the book uses symbols and figures of speech to convey this literal meaning. For example, keys to the bottomless pit are figurative, but Satan, the pit, and the millennium are all literal. Stars are symbols of literal angels. John explains that to us. Indeed, the very symbols used in Revelation are invariably interpreted there or elsewhere in scripture. Several things demonstrate that these predictions are for the future. John was told that they were for things that would be after his time. The book of Revelation was written after AD 70 and hence could not have been fulfilled in the first century as preterist claim. The events that must happen before the end comes have never happened, including stars falling from the sky, one third of human beings being killed, all life in the sea dying, Christ coming back visibly, and Christ reigning on earth for 1,000 years. The first and second resurrections have not yet occurred one before and one after the thousand year reign of Christ. And Jesus has not yet distributed our final rewards. To claim all of this is merely allegorical is to deny the literal sense of scripture and undermine many of the great fundamentals of the faith. The fourth view is an idealist or spiritual view. According to this view, the predictions in Revelation are allegorical, symbolizing the ages, ageless struggle between good and evil. So in other words, in this view, 
they believe that we can't really equate the prophecies in the book of Revelation to specific events, either historical or future. That it's sort of a, it's sort of a generic book, get, uh, encouraging us to be strong and, and faithful and, and to be hopeful and to rely on God's promises, even in the midst of tribulation and persecution. So they, they take sort of a generic view of the book. But if this view is correct, the second coming and the resurrection must also be allegorical, which is heresy. If other sections of the Bible, like Christ's death and resurrection, are allegorized, it undermines our salvation. So those are the four different ways that in which the, the book of Revelation is interpreted, is understood. Now, just to give you a little preview of what I will be covering next week, I'm going to talk about the different ways in which the messages to the churches are understood. Those messages to the seven churches of Revelation are often understood in different ways. The messages to the churches in, in chapters two and three can be viewed in four ways. As messages to seven particular churches at the time when John wrote, that is the most obvious understanding, that there are messages to seven first century churches as a history of the whole church from the beginning to the end of its time on earth. In other words, each church uh, is seen as a church era down through the centuries. So in other words, the first era of church history is seen as the Ephesus era. And then after that comes the Pergamon, or excuse me, the, the, the Smyrna era. And then the Pergamus era and so on. So church history is divided up into seven church eras. Another way that the messages to the churches are looked at is as messages to the whole church during the whole church age. So some see that the messages to the seven churches of Revelation are messages to the whole church, telling all churches down through the ages emulate the good things that you find in the seven churches, avoid the bad things that you find in the seven churches. And similarly, they are sometimes seen as personal messages to each believer. So they are messages to each believer to emulate the good that you see in the seven churches of Revelation and avoid the bad that you see. So that's one thing that I'll be discussing next time. I will also be discussing the importance of inset chapters. What are inset chapters? Well, an inset chapter is like a sidebar, an excursus, a temporary departure from the main story flow of the book, a, a rabbit tail, a rabbit trail, if you will. Within the book of Revelation, there are inset chapters chapters that do not follow the time sequence established by the rest of the book. They explain in more detail events that are necessary to understand more fully what is happening in time sequence. So the insets are historical digressions that give greater clarity to the revelation. I'll give you a brief example of, of an inset. This is from chapter 12 of Revelation. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Obviously, these verses in the book of Revelation are not prophesying about some future event yet to come. They are talking about an event that happened in the past, albeit they are much symbolism is used, but it's talking about a past event, the first coming of Jesus Christ. 
So it's not prophesying about a future event. This is an inset. So I'll be talking about the significance of the various insets in the book of Revelation. One of the things that, that Christians greatly appreciate about the book of Revelation is that it places prophetic events, future events, in a chronological sequence in which they will be fulfilled. And that isn't the case with the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets often go back and forth between the near fulfillment, far fulfillment, and you know, one verse may be talking about the, the near fulfillment and the next verse talking about the far fulfillment and the next verse goes back to the near fulfillment. And so it, it sometimes can be confusing if you're not following closely. And even when they're talking about the far fulfillment, they may in one verse be talking about the events of Christ's first coming. And then in the next verse, talking about events leading up to his second coming. And then in the next verse, talking about conditions during the millennial kingdom beyond his second coming. And they jump back and forth between these periods of time. And so if you're not really on your toes, you, you may not discern which period of time the prophet is talking about. So we greatly appreciate that in the book of Revelation, John has given us a, a chronological sequence of prophetic events. But you do have to keep in mind these inset chapters, chapters which are a deviation from the main story flow of the book, designed to, to deepen our understanding of things that are happening as they are happening. So that will conclude Revelation part one. I'll close with a word of prayer and then we'll open it up for comments and discussion. Father, we are so grateful that you have given us a clear revelation, a clear understanding of what you are doing on this earth and of how your plan will eventually be brought to fruition and this world will be brought under your total control. It is under your control now, but you are allowing things to happen that are contrary to your moral will, obviously, but you allow them to happen. But you will one day assert your great sovereignty over this earth. We are so grateful for that. And we are all so grateful, even though it may be difficult at the time, to go through persecution, tribulation that we have now, even before the arrival of the great tribulation, we do have tribulation and persecution now. And we can be certain, we can be confident that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that you are always with us. And yet you will use our trials and difficulties to strengthen our faith and to help us grow. For that we are thankful. And we pray in the name of your Son, our soon coming King, Jesus Christ. Amen.